rest of it is occupied by an extraordinary uh, diversity of microbial forms, all of which are as different from each other as you know whales are from banana trees. And uh, so it's, uh, it, it actually shows that the diversity of life on Earth is orders of magnitude greater than we ever thought it was. And even though we think of this vast diversity within the phyla of animals or plants, it's just a tiny sliver of what the whole picture is. So welcome, uh, Larry and Randy, to the show. Thank uh, you, Greg. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Larry uh, uh, and Randy, uh, I've worked with you both, but today we're going to focus on, uh, we had Randy on the show previously, Larry, and she talked about coral reefs and her speciality, coral livery, which I never knew what coral livery was till I, till I met her. <laughs> I never heard of it. <laughs> I have to <laughs> <laughs> it's such an esoteric, uh, by the way, listeners, it means uh, it's got to do with fish that eat coral uh, for a living. But uh, we can maybe dip into that later on. But uh, Larry uh, and I share, have shared a lot of uh, things over the years, uh, expeditions, mentors, a lot of diving in the water. And he's one of the, uh, used to be few scientists in the world that studied the open ocean. Uh, and that's the part it's the largest living space on the planet. It's the, we call it the pelagic ocean. And I'm gonna pull up a quick shot of the different zones of the ocean here for folks to look at and see what I'm referring to. Um, the ocean can be broken up into the surface. And in, on this screen, it says sublittoral, which just means um, below the low tide. And then it goes down to 1,000 feet, then it's like 4,000 feet, and this is the open ocean, or the bathypelagic, or the first the mesopelagic, bathypelagic, these are all technical terms, but it just means as you're moving down the water column. And the, the deepest part of our ocean is, you know, 30,000 feet plus, I believe it's precisely, it's about 33,000 feet is the trench, deepest trench depth, and that's called the Hadal zone. But it's this pelagic area that um, so many interesting animals live in. And in fact, it is the largest uh, contiguous living space known in the, in the universe, uh, we like to say. Um, and if aliens from another planet were to come to ours and want to know where the most common creatures live and what they are, they'd probably head to the pelagic area and talk to a jellyfish because that's really where the most of the animal uh, life kind of lives uh, if you take away uh, the abundance of plants which dominate on the on the coastline. So uh, Larry, uh, famously you once told me that slime, that life would not be possible without slime itself. Let me use, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well what I meant by that was uh, a lot of the creatures that live in this vast living space that you were just been talking about, the, the, the earth's oceans, uh, and which indeed is uh, the biggest place for life anywhere in our in the known universe so far. Great term. Uh, a lot of the things there are um, rely on uh, what we would technically call mucus. I guess you could say slime for a lot of their life functions, having to do with things like collecting food and transporting it, uh, protecting themselves from predators, protecting themselves from parasites. Uh, probably involved in some of their reproduction processes. And uh, 
while we tend to uh, we tend to think of that as something rather undesirable, in fact, uh, that kind of a mucus-like material turns out to be really essential. Now, you know, of course, we ourselves as vertebrates uh, rely on mucus uh, as just as much as they do, but it's it's all internal for us. It's inside our lungs, it's inside our nasal passages, and uh, you know, it performs extraordinarily important functions there. For the animals that live in the ocean, jellyfishes and salps and some of the other things that we may get to talk about today, it is a more sort of central to, to their lifestyle. Now, didn't I just catch you on something there? We're not supposed to say jellyfish, you once told me. <laughs> well, you know, people go back and forth on that because yes, they're not fish. And <laughs> starfish are not fish. Uh, but frankly, I'm really not a stickler on that. I mean, jellyfish is a nice descriptive term. Uh, the important part is the jelly part, uh, just like in starfish, the important part is the starfish. And so uh, if people want to say starfish instead of sea stars or jellyfish instead of cnidarian medusae, it's okay with me. All right, all right, because I, I believe it was Kate or somebody that caught me on that once now, and I always try to, I try to speak correctly about sea jellies is the... Uh, uh, the approved uh, common name for, for these animals. And they are very interesting animals and they, they represent really more uh, of kind of where life came from, uh, the, the pre-vertebrate world. You know, we're, we are uh, vertebrates, which are animals with a backbone and bones. Well, actually, not just a backbone, but we have bones. And, but life uh, took quite a while to develop uh, an internal structure like vertebra. Uh, there, before that, it was uh, really consisted of, uh, I want to use the word gooey, but, you know, kind of uh, amorphous gooey uh, life material uh, like sea jellies. And you mentioned salps and siphonophores. And what, what can you describe this? Yeah, I mean, if you go, if you trace the sort of evolutionary history back to the Cambrian 600 million years ago, and even further back to the pre-Cambrian, uh, the fossils that we find from that period of time are, look very much like jellyfish, sea jellies that we have around us today. They're sort of uh, flat disc-like structures and fossilized in such a way that suggests that they didn't really have hard parts like bones, but that they were soft and jelly-like and made an impression in mud and then that, that ended up becoming a fossil. In fact, some of them look remarkably similar to uh, jellyfish that we can find in our oceans today. Not that they're the same, for sure, but, but they look very similar in form. So indeed, animals go back to the beginning of multicellular, or what we call metazoan life forms. The first things to, to become larger than single cells. You know, it's interesting, oh, sorry. Give our listeners and, and watchers a sense of how long ago you you said Precambrian. A lot of people will not know how many millions of, or billions of years that was. What what's the? Well, uh, the Cambrian is about six hundred million years ago. So the Precambrian is back farther than that. Back maybe almost a billion, or at least a few hundred million more than more than that. And life began three point five billion years ago. Right. Right. Yeah as single-celled um, organisms of some kind, which uh, uh, eventually got together in a way that created multi-celled organisms. When did that happen? When did the, meta when did the uh, multicellular age begin? Well, it was a long, long stretch of, of 
single cellular life. It was right, right, yeah. And I think so. This Precambrian period, and I don't have the exact dates at the tip of my tongue, but uh, I think that's where where people see the first fossils that look that they are large enough and of a morphology that that seems to mean that they must be multicellular. Yeah, I want to kind of pause this for a second because I find it very fascinating and relevant to the show in a lot of ways because. You know, one of the one of the one of our uh, philosophies on the show is that humanity and the oceans share the same fate, and uh, we humans are part of a, what's called the hominid line of primates, and and that basically means when primates started walking around on two feet, that's when the hominids began, and that was only six million years ago. <laughs> so. Homo sapiens, our particular species, was a couple hundred, I believe, a couple hundred thousand years ago. So we're very recent, extreme. I mean, we're just like this the last second of a 24-hour day is us. We appear on the scene and we've, we've sort of taken over and we're dealing with the consequences of this rapid colonization and use of the planet. But I always find the early history of life fascinating because as I recall, and it's not my area of speciality, but Life began, and then it was really slow getting to, was it like a billion years before it became multicellular, Randy, or do you know about that? Have I gone beyond your specialty too? Randy? Randy, can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me, Randy? Yes, I can now. I think you froze for a minute. Okay, no, it's okay. I'll just, I'll just come back at it. I find it very fascinating, the development of life on the planet where life began, and then it was basically very, I don't want to say stagnant, but it was uh, very slow until it hit the multicellular uh, level, and then it exploded. And how long was that period of, uh, you know, it was like a billion years, wasn't it, from the when life first kind of emerged or? You know, what's, uh, I mean, I, I don't have the exact dates in front of me for sort of the various um, points, major points of evolution, but I think back to your earlier point on this, right? It took a long time for each of these sort of multicellular life forms to sort of really take a foothold. And I really think it speaks to the success of gelatinous organisms, right? It's like the success of slime, that it's been around for 600, you know, million years and has and has been and has been so successful um, even today, right? That it's still around um, in in very similar forms to the way it's always used to have been, and that's true of actually even the earliest life forms, right? When you think back to like stromatolites, which um, are some of the earliest um, organisms in the planet uh, that really actually have helped in the formation of the atmosphere as we know it today, there are still some living examples, and so some of the most primitive, most basic forms of life that have been around since the earliest you know, points in, in um, Earth's history are so successful that they're still here. And to me, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I want to, I hope I don't and watchers, but this is the stuff that I really love. I, I was just reading yesterday about uh, horseshoe crabs. Now they are really interesting. They've been around for almost half a billion years. Half a billion years. They started before the dinosaurs. They lasted through the dinosaur period right up until the present, and they're still here in basically the same form. And um, 
I, the reason I was reading about them is that they have a particular property in their blood that we use for uh, antibiotic, antibi antibiotic detection of some sort. Um, so this, uh, this whole magnificent history of life on our planet is so interesting in so many ways, but it started in the ocean and the early forms were uh, very much the kind that has made, Larry's made his career on. <laughs> you, you've made your career on the backs of these animals that uh, were uh, representative of some of these, these early forms. And when I went through, I just ticked off, I said, tenophores, uh, uh, siphonophores, I, those are all phyla, right? They're big wedges of diversity in the ocean. Now, this is a hard thing to get across, but it's really important to get across, I think, to people, that when we organize life in the, when you were in high school and they went through the organization of zoology, I remember we had to, we used the word kings play chess on fine gold and silver. Kings play chess on fine gold and silver. King Philip climbed over the fence and got shot. <laughs> so it's kingdom, yeah. is the highest order, phylum, it's kings play chess class, on order, fine family, gold genus, silver species. So kings play chess on fine gold and silver. It's how we organize things. So phylum, phylum or phyla, is a very, very high level of diversity. I mean, it's a grouping of animals that, uh, uh, mammals, we aren't, even, we aren't even a phyla. We're a class, right? We, we belong to the phyla vertebrata, right? We're in the, the vertebrate phyla, uh, I believe. Isn't that right? Isn't that, isn't that correct? Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Okay, so. Vertebrata, actually. Is of, the, of the 30 odd extent, uh, phyla, phyla on the planet, they are all represented in the ocean except I believe one or two. Whereas on land, there's a whole bunch missing that are only found in the ocean. So uh, the ocean is a source of, um, there's more species identified on land. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the plant world um, and insect world, but there are more different deep divisions of life uh, in terms of uh, phyla in the ocean. And the, the kind that you've studied are, are, are in those uh, sectors that we generally think of as jellyfish and some of the other ones are long uh, colonial animals. Why don't you tell us a little bit, walk us through some of these groups. I know you've got some pictures too. Sure. Uh, well, uh, one thing to, to think about uh, is that, you know, in recent years, uh, we've discovered enough about other forms of life that uh, if you were to make a sort of a, a plot of all the different uh, types, uh, genetically distinct different types of organisms, particularly the microbes of various kinds, that all of those 32 phyla you talked about that encompass all the plants and animals and everything we're familiar with would fit in a tiny little segment of that plot because the rest of it is occupied by an extraordinary uh, diversity of microbial forms, all of which are as different from each other as you know, whales are from banana trees. And uh, so it's, uh, it, it actually shows that the diversity of life on earth is orders of magnitude greater than we ever thought it was. And even though we think of this vast diversity within the phyla of animals or plants, it's just a tiny sliver of what the whole picture is. Wow, that was very well put. Um, 
Another way to think about it too, that helps people understand it is there are more uh, bacteria, more cells of bacteria in your body than there are cells of your own body. Yep, yep. We're just, uh, we're just walking around as a host. We're a host. <laughs> and uh, as long as everybody gets along, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> we're now in the midst of an experience where they don't all get along. Um, but back to your, your point about the, the jelly, what we call uh, gelatinous plankton sometimes, or jelly animals. Uh, the thing that's interesting is that they represent an adaptation over hundreds of millions of years to living in, up in the water, to floating around and swimming in the water. And, you know, I sometimes think of them as their bodies as being organized seawater. Because if you were to, if you were to take all the water out of those bodies, there'd be very little left. They're like 95% water. And so in a sense, they are uh, of the same density, the same buoyancy as the environment that they live in. So it would be, you know, if birds were the same density as air, they'd be like balloons. They wouldn't have to fly, they would just float. And so the animals we're talking about are essentially neutrally buoyant everywhere in the environment they live in. And it's an environment which as he was, pointed out earlier is, is huge in every dimension. It's three-dimensional. There's no top or bottom or sides to it effectively. So these are animals that have evolved there to be sort of really one with the environment by being almost like it in terms of the composition of their body and yet organized in a way that enables them to swim and, and feed and, and reproduce and uh, uh, migrate and do all kinds of other things, even lacking what we think of as a brain, for example, or an organized uh, nervous system, uh, the way we see on land animals. So um, that long, long, long period of evolution in the ocean has enabled them to survive and behave in really quite complex ways, um, despite having almost nothing to them. Yeah, wow, that's really a great way to, let's look, look at some pictures. Yeah, Larry, I love that idea of organized seawater. It really is uh, a, such a lovely way to, almost a poetic way to sort of think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's still clinical. You, you know, you, you put a jellyfish in a pan and put it out in the sun and you come back and the next day there's just a little, little yeah. film, you know, a little smudge. So let's see if I can put up a, a picture or two here. Yeah, the biomass really is almost nothing. Yeah. Uh, has anyone ever done, I'm sure somebody has, but they count, you know, try to, uh, does the relationship hold with sort of the amount of area it takes up versus the amount of biomass? Does it vastly differ from species to species? Well, what, what, are, what, what are humans? Humans are like, aren't we like 70% water? There's a, yeah, there's a lot of water in us, for sure. And uh, uh, day being a person, the next day being a smudge on the, on the pavement is not too far off. <laughs> right, right, right. So I don't know if, can you see this on the screen now? I don't think I've seen that before, Larry. Let me, uh, let me actually go back one. Let me go back, uh, let's, let's go back to this one because uh, we've been talking about jellyfish in, in a general sense. and, and uh, Greg, you mentioned the group of animals called siphonophores, and this is one. Yep. Um, so siphonophores, which don't really have a, any more common a name than that, are related to jellyfish. They're in the same phylum. 
uh, a phylum called Cnidaria. And the siphonophore that people would have heard of is the Portuguese man-o-war. Because that's the thing that if you're down on a beach in Florida or in the Caribbean, you bump into one of those things and you'll, you'll know it because they really sting like hell. Uh, this is a different kind of siphonophore. And I think what it does is sort of illustrate what their basic structure is like because there are hundreds and hundreds of species of them that are not at all like the Portuguese man of war. It's a really unusual example because it floats on the surface, which is why you can see it and why you might bump into it if you're at the beach or boating. The rest of them all live down in the water. And, but they have a number of things in common. They, in, in this one, there's two sort of big round objects at the top. Those are called swimming bells. And what they do is contract in a way that it pushes water out and they, they sort of swim by a form of jet propulsion. By pushing the water out, they, they swim forward. And what they do then is pull behind them this uh, little sort of chain of trailing things that you can see in the picture. And each one of those, and there are hundreds of them in a long chain, is a single sort of mouth and stomach. So wow. this animal has hundreds of mouths and stomachs and each one has a tentacle, which is a little dotted lines you can see. Those tentacles, like a jellyfish tentacle or a man of war tentacle, sting the prey and catch them and then they bring them up into each of the separate stomachs and then they get digested. And then the nutrition gets distributed to the entire organism, which is, so you can sort of think of it as being a colony or you can think of it as something like a train that has a locomotive at the front end that's pulling it all along and all the train cars along the way are doing their individual business of catching food and sharing it. So this is an example of an evolution by a sort of a, a division of labor oh. where one part of the animal does one thing, other parts do another thing. And because the fact that it's dividing up the, the work that way, and the way that it's put together in this long chain, some of these siphonophores can actually be on the order of 100 feet long because wow. it keeps growing and getting longer and longer and longer. And it's not hard to keep feeding itself because as it grows, it makes more and more mouths and more and more stomachs to keep feeding it. And uh, so it's kind of a remarkable adaptation uh, and a remar remarkable way of life in one of the relatives of the, the larger group of, of jellyfish. Hey, Larry, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's incredible to think about the size of these. And I, I always, I, I've always wondered, um, or often wondered about age in relationship to them. And I, I wondered if you could comment a little bit about that. About the age? Yeah, like how, how long, what does one of these live and what? Well, you're, it's a really good question. And it, it's a baffling question because um, there's, there's almost no way to tell how old these are. You can, you know, normally uh, if, you, if you caught something and kept it in a tank and watched it grow, you would know how long it took to get to a certain size. There's no way that these animals can be captured and brought back and kept in an aquarium or something long enough to do that. So you just have to make some guesses and assumptions that for something to get to be 100 feet long, must take on the order of years, probably, especially if it lives in an environment where the food is fairly scarce. 
So it's only catching something every now and then. And on the other hand, you know, their the metabolism, the cost of living to them is low. Uh, they don't have to keep their bodies warm. They don't have to swim fast. They don't have to support a lot of other functions. So it may be that because of their low metabolism, they can survive for a long time at low food levels. Maybe they grow slowly, but if they're undisturbed as they would be in the deep ocean, um, there's nothing to stop them continue, continuing to grow. Now, well, I should say that there are also are siphonophores that are only like a quarter of an inch long. So there's a huge range of animals. They all work in similar ways, but uh, some are tiny and some are huge. Larry, I've been uh, alongside you for decades, uh, you know, diving and studying these, but I still am drawn in and entranced by you describing them to me. Thank you. Uh, to this day, um, how big is the the head structure on this? I've got a couple of questions about this picture, and then we can. And by the way, viewers, uh, there's something that Larry's going to show you later on, uh, which is really cool. It's a species that he and I discovered together that was uh, described, it was named one of the top 10 new species of the decade from, I think it was 2010. Yeah, 10 years ago, yeah, right. So, so how, how big is this? So the, the thing, the kind of the round part that you see here is um, maybe a golf ball size. Okay. And then the rest of it, like I said, for this species, it might be 10 or 15 feet long. The 100-footer is a different species, uh, which I don't have a picture of right here. But, you know, they even these get to be pretty good size. And how does it reproduce? Well, uh, and it, a couple of things. Um, it, a lot of these jellyfish have um, two modes of reproduction, what we call a sexual mode, which means that there's essentially eggs and sperm and an asexual mode, which is sort of a budding mode. It's more like a plant would reproduce by uh, budding off new plants. So in the case of this uh, siphonophore, um, it does have a sexual stage, which we don't see in this picture, uh, uh, that are male and female, and they produce eggs and sperm. And, but this one also reproduces uh, asexually by growing, by, by, by Butting off these little these little pieces that you see here, and so it's um, uh, a a two phase a two phase process. Uh, other types of jellyfish uh, are similar. Sometimes they have a stage that actually lives on the bottom or attached to rocks that uh, that reproduces uh, asexually by butting off little baby jellyfish, and then those little baby jellyfish, when they grow up to be bigger ones. Are male and female and they produce the eggs and sperm and then you get eggs and they're fertilized and they settle down to the bottom and become the other stage again. So uh, we, we also see this um, type of uh, switching back and forth in other animals that are not related to jellyfish at all but live in the same environment and actually superficially look rather similar. Wow. Well, listeners, I, I can show you an example of that in the next picture, um, I think. Let me yeah. see. Have a look. I was going to say to listeners, if you're listening to this podcast, you might want to switch over to the YouTube version because these, these images are amazing that we're seeing right now. It looks like something from outer space. Okay. What's this? So 
this is a cell, and um, which is a nice a short name, but uh, this is another animal which, if you were to look at it casually, looks like it's some other kind of jellyfish, perhaps, because it is gelatinous and it's transparent. Um, this particular one, the, the, big, the big one that you see that has a sort of long yellow stripe in it there, that long yellow stripe is its stomach, its intestine, you might say, its gut. And the animal itself is on the order of um, about four inches long. So salps are not at all related to jellyfish. In fact, they are related more closely to us. They are chordate animals and they don't have backbones, they don't have bones, but they are related to all of us that do have backbones and have bones. Now, a long time ago in evolutionary history, they went one way and we went another. And <laughs> they've been living in the ocean ever since. And they're much more complex. But you must be talking about the beginning of a neural network. Well, uh, they have actually a much more complicated uh, nervous system than a jellyfish does. They have a brain, they have a network of nerves, which is somewhat similar in broad outline to other vertebrates. Uh, they have an eye and they have a, um, a much more complex mechanism of feeding. So these animals um, swim through the water like the jellyfish and like the siphonophore that we saw before, they also swim by jet propulsion. The water goes in one end, their body is sort of like a, a hollow tube. Water goes in one end, they contract, and it pushes the water out the other end, and that moves the whole thing along through the water. So uh, that, that uh, act, action, because uh, it it's got water passing through its body, that's how it collects its food because inside its body, it has a filter and the filter traps the food particles, which in the case of this thing are mostly single celled algae that are growing in the ocean. It, as, we, as we know, uh, all of the plants in the ocean, the open ocean are, are single celled algae. And they're responsible for all of the new production of, of food from sunlight. Uh, so this is an animal, the salp, that swims through the water, takes the water through its body, and as the water is passing through, it gets all the little food particles get filtered out and eaten by the animal. And, and the sort of brownish material that you maybe can see in that yellow stripe of a, of a gut is actually the food material that it has recently eaten. So uh, these animals, so they're, they're what we call filter feeders because essentially they're filtering their food out of the water. And it's, you know, you can imagine this filter system as very much like your, the filter in your coffee maker. You, you pour coffee and grounds through that and the, and the grounds get stuck behind and the water goes through. Um, you said, Larry, you said it had an eye. I, I, an eye. I didn't realize that light sensitivity had developed in, uh, in this. Right, in this now they have. And, and it's only one eye, okay? And but, it's like, it's always right in the middle of your forehead, okay? So it's, it's not an eye that, as far as we know, serves the function of seeing things. We think it is probably just a light receptor. And, and, and the role of the eye, when we know it is sensitive to light, is to detect and maybe characterize light in the ocean. 
Now, one thing that could be for would be to know how deep it is or what time of day it is because of how bright the light from the sun is. As you go down deeper, of course, that light gets less and less. So in a sense, that gives you a sense of your depth. But it also, of course, varies from day to night. So it could also give you a sense of whether it's day or whether it's night. Um, Larry, do you think it's sensitive to bioluminescence? That's entirely possible, also, Randy, because the Sorry. few studies done show that it, it seems to respond to flashes, brief flashes of light, which is what bioluminescence would be like. So we don't know very much about it. We know that it's photosensitive. We know that it responds to certain kinds of light stimulus, but we don't, we really are mostly speculating about what its role is in the behavior of the animal. But it I, is interesting. I can't help uh, myself on this particular episode, letting ourselves geek out a little bit here, but I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Um, evolution and eyes, I think is a very interesting thing because uh, the sensitivity to light has, has developed in a, a number of different places uh, in the evolutionary system. It wasn't just one place that got passed on and, and used over and over again. It was a, a universal, uh, not a universal, but it was a widespread phenomenon where, where an organism found it advantageous to be able to sense light. And in the primitive ones like this, it might be, as you pointed out, to, to just know what's up and what's down if it's near the surface, or to perhaps sense uh, flashes from other animals that are making light because Animals have many, many, many animals in deep ocean have the ability to make light um, of their own through something called bioluminescence. But the evolution, and then it, eyes reach their peak in um, uh, hawks and humans and- uh, Stomatopods. Uh, <laughs> yeah, stomatopods. Stomatopods. Where, you know, the, the sensitivity of light has gotten to the point where uh, it becomes extremely um, acute and uh, multidimensional. There are other features in evolution, however, and there's one in particular, which I find fascinating, that only happened once, and it's so fundamental to everything, and that is the chlorophyll uh, function. Mm -hmm. that, uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the, because I recently learned about it myself, the, that, miracle <laughs> of being able to take an, a light beam and create a change in the form of a chlorophyll cell and store energy it only happened once because it's identical in every single organism on the planet and we we actually have pieces of that genome in us because we also all life dates back to uh to, to plants. Um, are you either of you too familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, it, it, in, in uh, photosynthetic prokaryotes, it's uh, arranged a little differently than it is in, in eukaryotes, where you actually have chloroplasts. But, and, and those came about again by uh, some combination of uh, cellular components. But uh, yeah, I mean, without that, we wouldn't have oxygen in our atmosphere, you know, thanks to all those uh, blue-green type, uh, what we call cyanobacteria that uh, populated the earth before these animals were even, you know, on the, on the horizon and, uh, and changed our atmosphere. 
Yeah, that's like uh, the stromatolites we were talking about earlier, um, made up of the of, of this sort of cyanobacteria, made up of cyanobacteria, which are doing exactly that. But you know, that actually brings coming back to the eye on this a little bit because I think there's two things. I just uh, this is a random shot in the dark brainstorm question among friends, but I've often wondered about prey selectivity in these kinds of gelatinous organisms and whether or not they they care which kind of algae they're eating. And if so, you know, a lot of different algae, you know, they, they look the same to us, but there are a lot of different um, pigmentations, right, which actually have really different spectral signatures. And I wonder if, I wonder if they're able to see what they're eating and uh, target, you know, areas with high density particles that they want to eat. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Like I said, we really don't have any very good evidence of what the role or the function of the eye is. I will say that the, these, these salps, these animals, have other what appear to be sensory structures inside their, their mouth opening. And it, it may well be that those uh, have a role in uh, choosing the food or deciding um, when, to, when to stop feeding and when to start feeding, uh, perhaps by uh, chemical senses uh, or even perhaps by mechanical senses of essentially being hit by, by particles. So, uh, you know, we know that other animals have those types of senses and uh, whether that's operating in these, it's not, not really sure yet. Thank you. Wow. Looks like, again, it looks like something from outer space. Uh <laughs> I didn't, there's one thing I didn't talk about here, which is the, the little the trail of little wheels, little wagon wheels here. Uh, because I, I said that other animals besides the jellyfish uh, have alternating reproductive modes, sexual and asexual. So that's what you're seeing in this picture because the big one, the big guy, uh, actually big girl, we should say, is, um, well, it's really neither male nor female, but it is reproducing asexually and it is making these little, uh, these little wheels of babies essentially um, all connected together. So this is, this is the main way that salps increase their numbers is by an asexual budding process that produces hundreds of babies at a time. Uh, in the case of this particular one, they get arranged in these little wheels, which are then uh, attached together. So each of those wheels uh, has 12 little baby salps arranged in it. Uh, and they're put together if you imagine an orange, they're kind of arranged the way the segments of an orange are arranged, except that there's a, a, a kind of an, an opening in the center. And eventually each individual in those little wheels will become mature and it will first become, it first be, will be a female uh, that will have an egg in it already attached. Uh, and at some point um, that egg will be fertilized because there will be other older ones that have finished being female and have now become male, and they are producing the sperm, which then fertilizes the younger ones. Uh, and then what you get inside each one of those, and this is where the connection back to us seems more obvious, is a little baby growing up, which is called an embryo, and it is connected by a placenta to the body of the parent which nourishes it until it grows up to be big enough to be born. And once that happens, it breaks away, it's, it swims off on its own, and then it eventually grows up to be this big one that we see in the picture. 
and that, re that continues the reproductive cycle via the budding stage. So it's complicated. You got three different, you got a female, a male, and then a, a neither, a neuter, you might say, that does the, re the asexual reproduction. You've got animals that switch from being one to the other. You've got little babies that grow up inside, almost inside their mother's tummy in a sense. Um, and it's just bizarre. We figured, figured all this out, Larry, on this particular story you're telling us. Is this some of your research? Was it Bill May? Yeah, well, you know, the, the basic outlines of this have been figured out, of, you know, 75, 80 years ago, probably. Right. Uh, but um, we, you know, the, the, the way that we've worked on this, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go to another picture here um, that kind of illustrates our, our operating method. Um, this is a picture which I, maybe you can see now that, as, and this will be familiar to you, Greg, uh, a bunch of divers and they're all, uh, they're all, they're all kind of strung out on, 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 on ropes here. This, this is because we're out in the middle of the ocean and we don't want to get lost. But the point of this is that we studied these animals like the ones we've just been talking about by going out there as divers in the middle of the ocean and collecting them individually alive in what amounts to a peanut butter jar and bringing them back onto a ship where we can keep them alive and we can study things like this reproductive behavior that we've just been talking about or the feeding behavior or to some extent the growth rates and so forth. So if you didn't do it like this and you went there with a conventional net that might, that people would tow through the water to collect plankton, all of those jelly-like squishy animals would get smushed into slime. And then there's not much you can do with them uh, in terms of understanding their life. So the key to understanding how the salps work or how the siphonophores work or many of the other things we might talk about comes in being able to work on living intact healthy animals. And our approach, our trick, you might say, to do that is, is what you see in the picture. And you know, Larry, I don't know if you remember this, but I actually, um, I've only done one of these dives in my entire life, and it was with you and with Greg in the Phoenix mm -hmm. Islands protected area. I really thank you for that. And for listeners who have, who have not done this sort of suspended rope diving in the middle, middle of the water column, I'll just add that I, I didn't, I didn't understand a couple of things until I did it. So, so let me let me just explain. First of all, it is completely terrifying and completely zen all at the same time. <laughs> terrifying because you 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 have no frame of reference, right? You can't see the bottom underneath you most of the time, and so light is scattering in all these different directions. And it's believe it or not, when you're really down there, it's sometimes it's you know you always know which way is up, but it's it's very disorienting. But it's completely zen because you're sitting there with a, your open peanut butter jar and you're waiting for a piece of plankton to float by. And as a benthic ecologist, I remember feeling, I, mean, I totally trusted you, but I was a little skeptical. I'm like, really, I'm going to sit here and the plankton is just going to float by and I'm going to be able to catch it and cap it and then grab another one. And that's exactly what it's like. You just sort of wait a minute mm -hmm. and you just sort of relax into it. And this beautiful animal just comes floating by and you just gently capture it in your jar bag it and get your next and grab your next jar and look wait for your next animal and they come at a frequency that's not 
ridiculous. You know, it's you really you're busy the whole dive. And I, I was really it, it was an incredible experience. I just wanted to a thank you for it and b you know share that um, as a novice to this. It was incredible. Yeah, I'd like to add here that uh, celebrate Larry for his uh, pioneering work in this in this area, because uh, this kind of diving is called blue water diving, where you go out into the middle of the ocean and the bottom can sometimes be uh, 15, 20,000 feet below you. And it's vast, it's open, it's exciting, it's, it's scary times, but it's the only way, uh, or it was the only way, we're now developing robots and other machines that can help do this, but it had been the only way to understand these animals that live in, in the open ocean. And as we started out the conversation are mostly water. And they, prior to that, they ended up in nets as just goo. And you know, we had no idea what they did or what they looked like until uh, people started going out and conducting these blue water dives. So one of the things I might point, I don't know if you can see this video, um, but Phelps. Uh, in extraordinary numbers. Uh, incredible swarm densities. And this is what occurs from time to time, uh, that they are so abundant uh, that this is, uh, they just fill the water with, with jelly. Uh, and this picture has probably got three or four different species. Uh, this was uh, filmed by a woman named Allison Perkins down off of New Zealand, Greg. You, you, uh, you, you, you know, certainly spent time down there. Yeah. It's a, this kind of illustrates how abundant uh, some of these organisms can be from time to time. Yeah, it's really interesting, Larry, because I, I did live in New Zealand for quite some time and dove a lot there. And I did, I did have occasional bursts. I never saw this, this particular species, but a few times I'd go out diving and there would be just, a, just the water would just be full of a, a particular species of sea jelly or salp uh and then it would be gone the next day uh but i can't believe that this is uh i mean i can believe it because you told me but it's one would think this was an aquarium that where you had concentrated them but this is no, this is uh this is real life i'm not even sure you could keep this density in an aquarium or actually no you couldn't salps are really hard to keep in any aquarium anywhere they are yeah yeah we've spent years trying to do it without much success yeah this, Good thing they don't sting too badly. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, it's, it's so important to sort of understand that this is life on Earth. This is like <laughs> most of what life on Earth is, is this kind of stuff. And, you know, people never, never, never see this, and you don't think of this. Even if you're thinking about what lives in the ocean, it's usually not stuff like this. It's, you know, it's fish or maybe turtles or whales or something, which is all good. But uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. And, and, uh, the rest of it, and of course, we're only we're only talking about the top uh, 100 feet or so of the ocean here, and what we've been seeing so far, what we've been talking about. So that's just the very skin. And as you know from the diagram you put up before, I mean, most of the ocean is a lot, lot deeper, and it's a completely, it's a very different environment in terms of what lives there. Yeah, yeah, and this, 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 to, what this says to me, Larry and Randy, too, is. 
wow, that's a productive ocean <laughs> right there. What was going on at that season, that time of day, there must have been it must have been a spring plankton bloom or something, or it must have been. It must have been, yeah, right. But yeah, they're definitely failing at uh, social distancing. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's so many of them. But then most of the ocean's not like that, of course, yeah. as we know. I mean, this is a, this is a productive area uh, where there are a lot of nutrients, there's light, there's growth, and so forth. But most of the ocean, the open ocean, is not like that. It's much more almost like a desert. There's still life there, but it's uh, not nearly this kind of density. And then when you get down deeper, you know, it gets to be less and less. Uh, fascinating stuff down there, but uh, not, not nearly this kind of abundance, as far as we know. Yeah. Well, and to illustrate that point, I'm going to recall something you taught me, Larry, which I've always remembered. And we were discussing uh, how there's a lot of life near the surface. And you could tell this video was taken near the surface because there's sunlight there. And then you now you remember now you're talking about at the deepest the average depth of the ocean is uh 4000 meters how many miles is that that's uh about two and a half miles or so two and a half miles something like that for our listeners so that's the average depth okay but it goes down to 30,000 uh 33,000 feet so it's a lot of ocean and as you go from the sunlit waters, most of it is dark water and it gets darker and colder as you go down deep. And you and I were discussing when you get to the bottom, even in the deepest parts, that's where you get a lot of life again. You get the, you get the worms and you get this, a place to live and, um, and deep sea sharks hang out there, which I've spent a lot of time working with and studying. And I remember you said to me that um, animals go to the bottom because it's like the watering hole. It's where everybody hangs out, where you can find something to eat, but you're also going to get eaten. So you might right. minimize your time there. And, and you said that to hide in the ocean, you swim back into the vastness of the ocean, which I thought was a fascinating idea, that the ocean is so big and vast that you would go to a place where life is concentrated to find food, but there's a risk of getting eaten when you're there too. And to hide, you just go off into the openness somehow. Is that, was that? Yeah, sure. yeah, because it's, you're, you know, you're much more spread out. It's dark. Uh, yeah, once, once you're at an, at an interface like that, whether it's the bottom of the ocean or the top surface, you know, between water and air, there tends to be concentrations of things there. At the top, it's because there's a lot of sunlight. There's things that float and so forth. Also, the things that if you're swimming up, you can only go so far. You're going to get, you're going to stop there. Same with going down. But it, at the bottom, because of what lives on the bottom, and you know, Randy knows much more about this kind of benthic thing than I do, there's a concentration of organisms in the deep sea. They're gonna be scavengers and predators because there's no, there's no plant life. There's no primary, what we call primary production. Um, but there's a lot going on in and just on the sediments. And there are things that, as you say, come down to find food there and then hightail it back up into the dark water. Um, and I, you know, we saw some of those things on some of our, of our expeditions. Um, and we can, I probably can find some of those here to, to talk about, but um, it's, there is a whole range, a, a whole area near the bottom called the benthopelagic. So some of both, the pelagic, the water column, the benthos, and that's that kind of transition zone 
up to maybe 50 to 100 meters above the bottom that's got a place where animals are going down to the bottom and also coming up, spending some time away from it. Now, I promised our, I promised our audience, our listeners, and our viewers that they were going to see one of the top 10 species discovered in the first part of this decade that you and I just discovered together. Maybe yeah. you could bring that back and um, get ready, everyone, and, we'll, and, and describe, uh, why don't you describe that day, because I'll never forget it. Well, uh, first of all, let me see if I, I'll, let's talk, we'll lead up to it. So this is an expedition <laughs> that you and I were on in the Philippines yeah. and uh, about 10 or 11 years ago. And uh, we were down in a, in a part of the Philippines called the Celebes Sea, which is a Southern part uh, uh, down near uh, uh, Indonesia. And um, we were using a, uh, we were diving with a, a, a remote operated vehicle. And I, let me, I think I've got a picture of that that I'll try to pull up too. Look at that. Uh, here we go. This amazing picture of the species of the decade. Yeah. That... I love this. It's like uh, <laughs> I'm in the presence of greatness here and I get to now finally hear the leave. story of its discovery okay. firsthand. Here's our vehicle, Greg. Does this look familiar? Uh, it certainly does. So this was our, our avatar uh, for exploring the deep part of the ocean. This is a remotely operated vehicle. So no people inside, but it's connected by a cable up to the ship and people up on the ship can sit and watch it on a video screen and control it where it goes. And you can see that it's got lights in front and it's got some cameras and it has some sort of clear buckets out in front that are used for collecting things in. And we were operating down, I guess we were at about 2,000 to 3,000 meters depth. So that's uh, 10,000 feet roughly. Yeah. Um, in the Celebes Sea and looking around. Now, on the way down, and I'm gonna step through a couple of other pictures here, uh, we certainly saw other kinds of, of creatures uh, that are common in the deep ocean below the lighted zone. These are examples of deep sea jellyfish um, that we, some of which we probably saw down there. Um, these are examples of uh, deep sea uh, comb jellies or tinophores um that uh that are common actually much more common in the deep ocean than they are in the shallow water uh where people would see them so uh you know most people on earth have never seen any of these except a few of us and that includes uh you greg um now here's our there it is Ta-da! beautiful so this was, uh, and you remember when we first saw this, now we were sitting up on the ship looking at this on a, on a video screen and it sort of came into view. And, and we, people said, you know, what the hell is that? It's, yeah. it's all these, these tentacles and things out in front and said, oh my God, it's some kind of a squid. And said, wait a minute, look at this, this back part. That's not, it's some kind of a worm. So the obvious name was the squid worm. And, uh, uh, that's, uh, we've got Christian Squidworm right away. And we did uh, eventually collect, oh, half a dozen or so, as I recall, um, and, and brought them back up and uh, took a lot of photos. Um, and subsequently, um, specimens were sent to the Smithsonian. And uh, that's where scientists there uh, collaborated with us to uh, do the the, uh, the species description and give it a name. Um, let's see if I can remember the name. 
I think it's Tuthodrylus samae, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but uh, yeah, and then it and then it got uh, chosen as one of the ten coolest species of of 2010. So, I mean, of course it did. Look at it. It's beautiful. Yeah. It looks like, a, if you're just listening to this, I mean, it looks a little bit like a Chihuly glass sculpture, right? With these, mm -hmm. these squid-like tentacles. And it's got these really just um, sharp contrast uh, sort of spicules that kind of come off of the body. I mean, this thing is, is absolutely bizarre and stunning all at the same time. I'm just regretting you guys didn't name it after yourselves because I'm realizing that Stone Maiden or Maiden Stone, either way, kind of would have made a really good yeah, that's <laughs> combination. Yeah. That, that, Interestingly, yeah. after we got the, uh, the, I think, I believe the term is type specimens, in order to describe a new species, you need to have at least two or three uh, representative samples of it to make sure it's a species. Because if you just get one strange new animal, you never know, it might be some sort of a, uh, a hybrid or, or something that's, that's not uh, real. Um, then everybody said, oh yeah, they began to report having seen something like it out the porthole of a submarine and here and there and there and there, and but never able to capture one to identify it as a species. Remember that, Larry? Yep, yep that's right. Um, and you know, this is one, of, we were talking about the things that go down to the bottom and then come back up. And I, we think that that may be part of what this does, that these sort of tentacles that are out in the front of it may be involved in, in collecting food or collecting uh, deposits that have food on them. There, there are a lot of uh, worms that are deposit feeders like that, that use the sort of tentacles to bring the food in. And, but the fact that we saw it up in the water above the bottom suggests that it spends some of its time up there too. So we're not completely sure about what it does and it's, you know, how it goes about its life, but it looks like it might be one of the ones that is in that benthopelagic category. Larry, can you just put a little uh, uh, a scale bar on this for me? How big is this organism? Um, they were probably about four or five inches long. Wow, that's bigger than I would have thought. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good size, and um, it was. Uh, this is this is really one of the highlights in a, a career of a marine marine scientist, marine especially marine biologist is going to an area that is rarely explored, and this is the deep sea. And this sea that we went to, the Celebes Sea, has got some special characteristics which drew us there. And I'll briefly say what they are there. It's got a, there's only three seas on the planet that have, uh, we call them sills. That's the, the, the edges of them are fairly shallow. That is, you could drive a ship over the top and you don't even know it's there. But about 500 to 1,000 feet down, there's a sill which keeps the deep water from mixing, right? So it's like putting a glass into a bucket of water. There's a, the water can go across it, it can go down into it, but it can't go through it at depth. And it's the Celebes Sea, it's the um, Sulu Suluesi Sea, which is right next to it. And the third one is the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean dried up 5 million years ago and then filled up again. But these two never have. And They've been isolated so long from the rest of the deep sea that the water is still a little bit warmer at the bottom uh, from, the, from the Miocene. The oceans got cold about 25 million years ago when Antarctica pulled away from South America 
and the, circ the circumpolar current began to spin. And that's when the oceans got really cold and cold water started sinking and, at Antarctica and cooling off the deep sea, but it never got to the bottom of the, I mean, it did, uh, what are we talking, you know, tens of millions of years later, it's, it's now, I think the bottom temperature was four degrees or something like that, Larry. I, yeah. can't, I, I think about four degrees, but if you go outside to the regular old deep sea of the Pacific, it's uh, one, one or two degrees less than that. Um, and in the Sulu Sulawesi, it was even warmer at the bottom. Uh, so, and we, were, we had been hoping to find relics from that pre-Miocene period. Uh, we, did, we did not in the end find anything uh, from that era. But uh, we did find this, so it was worth the effort and one of the more exciting expeditions I'd ever been on. Thank you, Larry, you led that trip. You were the chief scientist and I appreciate uh, have, having the privilege to have gone and we got to celebrate uh, Emery Kristoff as well for mm -hmm. having pulled that one off. And it was a lot of challenges that, on that trip, I tell you. Uh, we'll, go, we'll have another episode on the challenges of doing expeditions and that one had, had them all. That, that one was particularly memorable in terms of its yeah, logistics. Right? <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm afraid we're gonna we're gonna have to wind this up here shortly. Uh, I, we'll we will have more coverage uh, if you'd be willing to come back some other time, Larry. But before we we sign off, I, I just kind of want to throw one question at you to sort of wind this up. Uh, is wh why does this stuff matter? Why do all these creatures that we just saw matter? Is there, is there anything that uh, comes to your mind? I mean, I, they matter to me because I just. I love knowledge, I love the ocean, but uh, what, what is it for you? What, the, what, what drove you, what's, what drives you in your life to be interested? Uh, I mean, I, I think that um, there is sort of an inherent appreciation and fascination with the, uh, the diversity and the, uh, how so many different kinds of organisms work and how so many different kinds of organisms could have arisen. Particularly, actually, it, it's interesting in the open ocean because it's uh, the environment is, you know, it differs from the top to the bottom and so forth. But for the most part, it's pretty uniform compared to how how uh, heterogeneous and complicated environments on land often are. And we think of we think of that complexity of the environment as been something that drives the evolution to so many different kinds of animals and, and, and organisms, plants and animals. And in the ocean, you don't have that complexity. And yet, you have a really quite remarkable diversity of, of body types and lifestyles and behaviors and, and everything else that take advantage and are adapted to that relatively um, uniform and constant environment. So it's kind of fascinating to think about how that has played out over evolutionary time. Um, and I, I think the other thing is, is, so what is the role, what is the function, what is the importance of all those things in the larger global system? And um, clearly, you know, right now, there's a lot of concern about what's happening in our atmosphere with excess carbon dioxide. Uh, one of the things that happens is that it gets taken up by, by the ocean in various ways. And one of the roles of these animals, these organisms that we have been seeing, or, or at least some of them, is to help is to participate in the removal of that from the upper layers of the ocean down into the deeper part of the ocean through a variety of mechanisms that collectively we call the biological pump. And so, from the point of view of the 
the planetary balance of uh, temperature and heat and gases and so forth from the atmosphere to the deep sea, there's a, a role at this part of the ocean and the things that live there play in it. Um, now, you know, we, we know that we don't get food from the deep ocean particularly. Uh, that's all comes from uh, high, further up. But nevertheless, the, the things that we use as food resources from the surface oceans, many of them do go down deep for some of their feeding. And a lot of what lives in the deeper part comes up. And so there is a connection between those two. There is a, a, a food source connection between the things that we think of as being ocean resources like fish uh, that we eat and the rest of this, this system. So, uh, I mean, just from the kind of a human perspective, those are a couple of ways in which a lot of these things are, are important. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all, I, I like to say, it's all about the ocean. You know, I think uh, humanity, we need to orient ourselves uh, and organize ourselves more towards the ocean uh, now than we ever have. And in terms of climate, uh, it's all about the ocean. There's more heat stored in the first meter of the ocean than there is in the entire atmosphere. And you've just described the important uh, contributions of storing carbon down through the, the great biological pump that the ocean provides. Uh, and some of these animals participate in that. So. Uh, we applaud you for your uh, for all the work you do in this area, area Larry, uh, uh, and thank you for sharing this. Randy, do you have any comments you'd like to make at the wrap up of this? Yeah, just to, just one really, which is just to say that um, I, you know, some of my favorite organisms in the oceans are the ones that I um, that are completely new to me and to everyone in science. And you, you know, your discoveries and the things that you have seen, you've brought so much light and life to this particular part of the ocean. I mean, you really helped to pioneer, um, you know, this ecosystem and the animals within it. And I think it's been really inspirational and really eye-opening. And then as just a, a human, you know, being on this planet, you know, it's been really, uh, it's, it's incredible to look at the diversity of life from just a, an amazement and a wow factor point of view. I mean, these creatures are beautiful as well as important. And their, um, their diversity, I think, is, is missed because everyone always looks at the surface. But remembering this incredible volume of water and then the incredible volume of work that has to go into being able to study them, both from a technological point of view, a curiosity, and it's sort of a scientific insight point of view, and then just all of the you know, sometimes the blood, sweat, and tears almost literally is, you know, th these expeditions are really hard work. I mean, this is, it's just a, a really monumental achievement to have, have um, really provided so much insight into this really challenging part of the planet to look at. So I, I just want to put that into context and, you know, tell you how much I really admire what you've been able to do. It's amazing. Well said. $1,000, we just started a couple of marine biological careers and young people <laughs> Listen to this well, there's, there's plenty more out there to discover. And I think that, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, it's like you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you, you were trying <laughs> to invent and create uh, weird, weird and bizarre organisms. You probably wouldn't find any, you couldn't come up with anything more weird and bizarre and unusual than what already exists out in the ocean somewhere. Well, Science fiction writers, right, draw their inspiration from this ecosystem all the time. Yeah. It's kind of a sleeper but a great film, obscure film about the deep ocean. Uh, the protagonist aliens <laughs> that lived in the deep sea were modeled after some of the creatures that, that you study. Uh, James Cameron's great film, The Abyss, I, re I recommend it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks just like that self you showed us. <laughs> so uh, are you, the, you, 
Larry, thank you so much, and Randy for co-hosting, uh, illustrating the sea has many voices. We, our philosophy is that we like to bring all the voices to the table, and we've had uh, today a wonderful dive uh, intellectually and visually into the open ocean with Dr. Larry Maiden, uh, associated with a with just recently uh, uh, finished up his gig as chief scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, and among many other things that he's involved with, with me and others. And uh, make sure you go back and look at Randy's episode if you haven't. Uh, Randy has been on the show before talking about coral. And uh, thank you, folks. We'll see you next week. I'd like to thank some of our sponsors, uh, uh, the Bucksbaum Foundation, uh, Ed Shine, uh, Wendy Benchley, John Powell, uh, and our co-executive producers, Ian Summerhalder and Christine Zinneman, makes this show possible. Thanks very much, folks, and see you next week.